We're looking at Colossians 3, 12 to 17 today. Let's begin by having the text before us, beginning to read at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, this is an interesting unit, and I want to address the issue of the structure of it and see if you can pick out the frames or the bracketing feature that the apostle uses here. You'll notice on your handout I've placed verses 12 and 14 first with regard to the question of a rhetorical or literary bracket. And as you examine it, I'm wondering if you can find the frame. Scanning verses 12 and 14. What do you see there? You're looking for symmetry. Bob, you ready to say something? No? No. Okay. Put on. Put on. Put on? Well, the problem is that in 14, if put on is in your text, it's in italics, which means it's not in the original Greek text. Okay, what word in verse 14 jumps out at you? What's the nicest word in verse 14? Yes, all right, now what do you see in verse 12? Beloved. Beloved, yes, all right. The roots are the same, come from the Greek word agape. So we have a frame of love between verse 12 and 14. And the question is, what's the effect of it? Why is the apostle framing those two verses? Why do you think he's doing that? Because in between, he's sandwiching verse 13. He's drawing attention to love, which shows itself in acts of forgiveness. Now, we're going to come back to that in detail, but that's what he's done here. He's expressing the love of Christ in terms of the action of forgiving one another. All right, now let's take a look at verses 15 to 17. 
We're looking again for another framing or bracketing pattern. Let's see if you can pick it out from those two verses. Loretta's already had her chance and she's gone to the head of the class, so I'll let somebody else have a chance. Unless you all want her to bail you out. There's thankfulness, yes, thanks and thankfulness. <clears throat> All right, now, that is the bracket effect, but you might notice that the word thankfulness in the New American Standard is also in verse 16, which is a mistranslation <clears throat> of the Greek word, or let, let us say that it's a less felicitous translation of the Greek word. <clears throat> the Greek word there is charis, and the Greek charis means grace. So here... The King James Version is much better than the New American Standards. Singing with grace in your hearts, it's a different word than thanks uh, in verse 15, thankful, and thanks in verse 17, which comes from the Greek word eucharisto, or eucharistos. The uh, English word eucharist comes from that Greek word in the sense of giving thanks for the death of Christ observed in the Lord's Supper. All right, so he uses two particular uh, words in 15 and 17 that mean thanks or thankfulness. He doesn't use that same word in verse 16, so it doesn't qualify. But once again, the effect of framing 15 and 17 with thankfulness or thanks has the effect of drawing attention to the sandwich of verse 16, the expression of thanks, the expression of thankfulness, the expression of thanksgiving, in terms of the singing or the hymnody or the psalmody of the church. All right, we'll come back to those uh, verses in detail, but that gives us this, shall we say, running rhetorical uh, structure that the apostle is using to to emphasize the indicative resulting in the imperative, the indicative state framing the imperative acts of forgiveness and singing singing with psalms, hymns, and musical, spiritual songs. All right, now let's go to verse, four, verse 12, I'm sorry, and let's begin to look at some of the details here. Now, in the New American Standard, the word chosen deflects a little bit from the power of the Greek word. And here again... The King James Version has given a more accurate translation, in my opinion, because the Greek word here is eklektos, eklektos, and it means elect. Those who have been elect or elected of God. It's a very strong word in Paul's vocabulary. It's a very strong concept in Christian religion, both Old and New Testament alike the election of God's redeemed people. Chosen, yes, but more strongly, elected, appointed to that choice on the part of a sovereign Lord. As Calvinists, we're not, uh, we're, we're not ashamed of that. We're not surprised by it. Uh, but the New American Standard is uh, somewhat deflecting the power of that Greek word 
by its, cho- by its choice of translation, the word chosen. All right, now let's keep in mind that when we're talking about election, we're talking about a heavenly gift. We're talking about a gift that comes out of heaven itself. We're talking about an eschatological gift, a gift that comes out of the eschaton because it comes out of God's own dwelling place. It comes out of God himself in his own dwelling place. It is an act of the triune God. Election involves the action of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which means that he has set his heart, his mind, his will, and his moral character upon those whom he has elected and chosen in his Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see what his election is doing. His election out of heaven is drawing you into heaven. His election out of his own image of glory is drawing you into the reflection of that image of glory. Election is a dramatic and vital concept. It is not a static or merely dogmatic concept. Now, also in this verse, you'll notice that Paul says, you have been set apart, meaning holy. That's what the word holy means. If he has chosen you, to draw you into his arena, to draw you into his dimension, to draw you into his dwelling place. If he has chosen and elected you for that purpose, then he is setting you apart from that which is not part of his arena, which means he's setting you apart unto the holiness of that heavenly kingdom. There is no sin there as there is no sin in him as he is there. And finally, in this verse He has set his affection upon his elect. He has not only elected them, predestinated them unto election to glory and heaven's bounty, but he has also set them apart in holiness, and he has set his affection, his love upon them to name them with the very same name that he gives to his own son, his only beloved son, his his beloved uh, son, our Savior. Randy? The expression called out, would that fit more to the chosen or set apart? It would reinforce the effect of election or being chosen. He's called you out. Whom he has elected them, he has also called, going back to Romans 8. So he does use that word called. Uh, It was in here, but I'm forgetting where it was. Yes, there it is. I was looking right at it. Sorry, thank you, Loretta. Verse 15 would be the expression of that election in terms of being called unto his grace in Christ. All right, now, we talked last time about the image of God, the renewal of the image of God in the old self and the new self paradigm that is present in verse 9 and verse 10. And Ben had raised a question about why the New American Standard used the word self there instead of the Greek word antipos, which means man. And I didn't have an answer for him then, but I think I have an answer for him now. The word self is neutral, and so it can refer either to a male self or a female self. Whereas we understand that with the King James language or that old language 
of the old man, new man. It includes women as well as men. It includes the human person, male and female alike. Though we don't need to, shall we, de-emphasize the word in order to be, shall we say, politically correct or whatever language you want to put on it. However, uh, that's my explanation for why self was chosen here in order to make sure that if you said man, that the women wouldn't be offended by the choice of term. I don't think you women would be offended anyway. I think you have a common sense knowledge about what that means. It's that the word man, old man, is being generic. It means mankind, male and female alike. All right. Now, back to my point. Uh, Sorry for the footnote, but I I wanted to bring that back because uh, Ben had asked a good question, and and I think there is this reasonable explanation for for, uh, the answer to his question. All right. Now, we talked about the image of God and the reflection of that image in man and the renewal of that image because of redemption or renovation in Christ. Now, that includes the image of his mind, will, heart, and moral character. And what Paul is doing here in this 12th verse is running down a list of these elements that are in God to be reflected in us as his image bearers renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So we're being drawn by the apostle into the reflection of the renewed image of God, our mind, our will, our heart, our moral character, mirroring his. Now, yes, it's mirroring God, but it's mirroring God our Savior. It's mirroring the Lord, mirroring the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the mind, will, heart, and moral character of God incarnate, crucified, risen, and glorified. So here, you'll notice that I am attaching the image of God in its renewal to the redemptive historical expression of it in the life of Christ. In other words, I'm anchoring that in what Christ himself accomplishes and lives out in history through his birth, through his uh, maturity, through his passion and death, through his burial, through his resurrection, through his ascension, through his glorification, etc. In other words, the image of God which is in Christ with respect to his human nature is renewed even as he goes through the process of its renewal by bearing its curse and coming away with its glorification and its perfect restitution. Perfectly in him, restored in measure in us by the indwelling power of the Spirit. So we can say that as Christ Jesus shares the image of God essentially, essentially, that is, in his divine nature, so he bears the image of God incarnationally, incarnationally in his human nature. And it is in that incarnational state that he is the elect of God. He is the chosen of the Lord. He is the beloved of the Father. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one eternal person and only begotten Son of the Father who has been determined by the elect choice of his Father to be set apart from all eternity 
to be the beloved of God with a never-ending passion and affection. So let us realize that the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the eschatological elect one, he himself predestined from before the foundation of the world, and he is the eschatological holy one set apart to be sinless, our sinless Savior from before the foundation of the world, and he is our eschatological loved one, beloved of his Father from everlasting to everlasting. What comes to us by means of the imago, what comes to us by means of this vocabulary, elect, holy, beloved, what comes to us comes to him, and therefore we have it in having him. In having him you have these riches, in having him you have these characteristics in measure, because he has joined you unto his son who has them in full measure, in completion, in perfection. All right, if we are given these titles, chosen or elect, holy and beloved, they were first given to the Son of God. And we participate in them through him by our identification with his election, our identification with his holiness, our identification with his beloved relation in our identifying union with Christ. We have these things in our union with him. They belong to us because they belong to him. He won them for us. He gained them for us. He performed them for us. He's done it all on our behalf. So the apostle Paul himself is elect, holy, beloved of God, through his en Christo, union with Christ. Here's the Apostles' narrative biography in this image construction within this portion of his letter. The Colossian Christians are elect, holy, beloved of God through their en Christo union with Christ. Here's the narrative biography of the Colossian church, which is, which is a reflection of the narrative biography of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul's narrative biography is a reflection of the narrative biography of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so are we drawn into that same paradigm. Union with Christ as union with Paul as union with the Colossian Christians. I trust that you see that this is not a static matter. That is, it's just stayed. doesn't have any drama. doesn't have any vitality to it. It has the vitality of the living Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it has. That's the vitality with which you've been connected. That's the glorious election with which you've been connected, the glorious holiness with which you've been connected, the glorious love with which you've been connected. All right, these blessed gifts from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are ours because they are first in our Savior, and then grace upon grace, Recreated anew in us, regenerated in us, resurrected in us, reborn in us, restored, renovated, and renewed in us by and through our union with the Son of God. There is no election for us. 
unless our Savior is the elect and chosen of God. There is no holiness for us unless our Savior is the Holy One of God. There is no love for us unless our Savior is the beloved of God the Father. All of these blessings go back to Him and what He is to His Father and to the Spirit and the glory of that inter-Trinitarian relationship. There, there is a wonder to admire. There is a wonder to praise God that He would draw you into that union which relates you to Him in His triune being. No, it doesn't make you part of the Trinity. It gives you the benefit of all the blessings in that triune relationship, that triune being. They poured out to you to the degree that a creature can fill them up unto the glory of God. We are the beneficiaries then of riches. Riches in Christ Jesus our Lord. So put on. Put on the results of these riches. In the gift, the grace gift to which You in Christ are the hope. Christ in you, rather, is the hope of glory, as he says in verse 27 of chapter 1 of this letter. The already not yet possession of glory by your renewal, your recreation in the image of the eschatological man, the last man, the man from heaven, who is the man who has worked out all that you have lost, completing and fulfilling it and accomplishing it on your behalf so that you can be the beneficiary of it, renewed in his eschatological image. It's like the putting off of an old shabby garment, which is the image the apostle uses here. Putting off an old shabby garment and putting on the robes of heaven, the glory robes of the righteousness of Christ, the glory robes of the love of Christ, the glory robes of the holiness of Christ and the choice election of Christ, putting on the new robes, the new garments, lovely and beautiful in compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. It's not only putting off the old shabby garment, it's putting on the new beauteous garment. Putting on all of these as your Lord Jesus Christ put all of them on in your place and for your sake. A heart of love for you that your heart might love him as you love one another. Kindness and generosity for you that you may be kind and generous in him to one another. Humility and lowliness for you that you may be humble and lowly in him to one another. Gentleness and tenderness for you that you may be gentle and tender in him to one another. Patient and long-suffering for you that you may be patient and long-suffering in him to one another. All of these qualities of verse 12 are rooted in Christ Jesus, 
first of all, and you as you are rooted in him, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul has been writing about the renewed image of God in the life of believers who are reborn from the old man to the new man in Christ Jesus. This is what that renewed image looks like. It reflects Christ. It reflects union with Christ. It reflects identification and participation with Christ in election, in holiness, in love, manifesting its new nature in the compassion of the soul, the kindness of the disposition, the humility of the role, the gentleness of the demeanor, and the patience of the will. Now, having this in mind, and having this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, let us bear with one another, enduring with a heart of love, in kindness and humility, with gentleness and patience, any complaint, any complaint which fellow Christians may lodge against us. Forgiving as we have been forgiven, forgiving in Christ and through Christ as we have been forgiving, forgiven in Christ and through Christ. Putting on the new man in Christ with that eschatological man's forgiving heart of love. His kindness and humility in forgiveness. Forgiving in Christ with his gentleness and patience. Thus demonstrating that the robes of Christ's forgiveness have been put on us. Showing that we are dressed in the forgiving love that he is dressed in. Manifesting by our forgiving others that we wear the forgiving nature of Christ as a heavenly garment. Here is a robe. For us to put on. Here is something to put on like a garment. The forgiving heart of Christ Jesus. So you see why he has sandwiched that 13th verse between 12 and 14. He wants to show this very important aspect of love in action. The love of Christ in action is a love which loves to forgive. Even if it's been offended, it loves to forgive when there has been an apology or repentance presented. The fact that there's a complaint here in this verse indicates that something has been done which is public notice, or something has been done which has been offensive. And so the complaint has been resolved by forgiveness, which also means apology and repentance. That's implied in the process. But when the process is completed, full forgiveness has been granted. What a wonderful wonderful sandwich device in order to promote or to describe or to put forth that beautiful image of being dressed in the forgiveness robe of the Lord Jesus Christ. But why repeat love in verse 14? And here I'm going to go back over the symmetry of the structure for a moment. Paul's already mentioned the heart of love that we are put on with in verse 12. Yet he has, you will note, this framing of the characteristics that the new man and the new woman put on, verses 12b and 13, in love. Love brackets 12 and 14. Even as you will note, 
thanks with thankfulness, brackets, verses 15 and 17. The apostle has intentionally constructed these two subunits in 12 to 17 with symmetry, symmetrical terms, agape and eucharistos. This makes 13a particularly and specifically an instance of love, love in action, we may say, even as 16 is a particular and specific instance of showing thanks, thanksgiving in action, particularly thanksgiving in musical song. There is thus a symmetrical or parallel pattern which structures the two sections of this unit, verses 12 to 17, even as we have pointed out at the beginning. I want to reinforce it because I want you to see that he's pushing the sandwich element in order to make prominent verse 13 and verse 16. That's the prominent action that shows forth the love. That's the prominent action that shows forth the thankful heart. He's done this intentionally in order to draw down our attention upon what's in between. It's like the Oreo cookie. It's the icing that's in between the two sandwich pieces. So he's making an Oreo cookie out of these characteristics in order to show the goodness and the sweetness of forgiveness and the goodness and the sweetness of singing with music in our hearts. All right, now to verse 14. And an examination of the grammar of this verse, which is translated beyond all these in the New American Standard, but probably better translated over or upon all these. The implication is that Paul is anointing or pouring over all these characteristics of 12 and 13. He's pouring over them the love of God. This is anchored, as we've noted, in the loved or beloved relation of verse 12. But here, he's, shall we say, soaking them. Beyond all this, or on all this, or over all this. And the image that I'm using is an image of pouring, but he's also used the image of putting on a garment, like putting on a robe. So if we think of that image, the garment of love is the robe which displays all the virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It is the robe which once donned, once put on, brings all these traits to perfection. Now we have to comment on that word perfection in verse 14. New American Standard, once again, <clears throat> translates somewhat ambiguously. It has a perfect bond of unity in the text, but there is no uh, <clears throat> a word for bond in the Greek. There are only two words at the end of that verse, and it is the word for perfect or perfection and unity or togetherness. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is beyond all things or over all these things put on love, which is the perfection of unity. Now the commentator P.T. O'Brien 
Australian, uh, whom I've cited before, is convicted in his commentary that this perfection is a genitive of perfection, meaning love leads to perfection. Love leads to completeness or wholeness, whether it is considered heavenly in its eschatological aspect or earthly in its semi-eschatological aspect. The perfection here is love reaching its completeness, its wholeness. Love bringing a sense of wholeness and completeness even as it is expressed. And you sense that even in the human exchange of love. You sense that love makes things easy, makes things warm, makes things whole and complete, resolves tensions, brings release. That is true. Here, in the spiritual realm, the same truth applies with respect to the perfection of that love, its whole completion. That is, whether it comes to completion in its perfection in heaven itself, which it will, or whether it's making its way towards that in the semi-eschatological expression, namely, this side of glory. The term here that Paul uses is a term to underscore the fact that the purpose of love is unto that completion, unto that perfection, the perfection of the image of God in its wonderful grace. Love is a grace of the beloved Jesus Christ. It perfects now and not yet. It completes now and not yet. It makes whole now and not yet all other in Christ graces. And if we ever forget it, we have a whole chapter to remind us. First Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love, is the very underscoring of what Paul is saying here in the space of a whole chapter. Here, just a phrase and a verse. There, an entire chapter. All right, now, we've observed that verses 15 to 17 are a subunit. And we observed that framing the recurrence of thanks or thankfulness which brackets 15 and 17 specifically. However, the apostle has in this Greek text another clue to the framing of verse 16 by verses 15 and 17. And you can even see it in your English translation. He has another clue as to how this is framed. You'll notice the word and in your translation. Or some of you may have the word and in your translation. And let the peace of Christ rule and whatever you do in word and deed. It is the Greek word chi which begins both of those verses. And so once again reinforces the bracketing of those two verses around verse 16. Now, the emphasis upon peace in 15 is the emphasis upon that which is the fruit of love. Peace is a consequence of the love of God shed abroad in the heart of the believer. Hatred, contention, They produce 
Not peace, but conflict, discord, discord, war, dissension, death, and pain. The peace of Christ flows naturally from the love of Christ. Where the love of Christ is put on, the grace and peace of Christ rules. No more enmity, no more conflict, but the peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the taste, that is the flavor of the love of God who have the peace that passes all understanding in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, I'll be glad to address them. But if not, we've come to the time for our break. And we'll take a little breather. And we'll come back and take a look at verse 16 in detail. Now to verse 16. Which commends the richness of the word of God. That has come to the Colossian church. That richness includes the richer revelation of God's word in the person and work of the incarnate, resurrected, and glorified Christ. The revelation of the fulfillment of God's purpose in the life, death, and glorification of his incarnate son is richer in degree and the Old Testament revelation of the prospect and promise of his coming. Actualization and realization of the, of, of in Christ New Testament revelation is richer than anticipation and projection of Christ in Old Testament revelation. So the word of God by way of New Testament revelation is a richer treasure than the word of God by way of Old Testament revelation. By the same token, and in parallel symmetry, the forms of praise and exaltation in the New Testament response to this more wonderful revelation involves a richer style and form than the Old Testament response to revelation. The newness of the new covenant in Christ, of the new creation in Christ Jesus, of the new birth in Christ, of the new life from the dead in Christ, from the renewal of the image of God in Christ, all this newness, richness, greater blessedness is reflected in the music of the New Testament church. In addition to the riches of the Psalter, The richer revelation contains the riches of hymns and spiritual songs in the music of the church. We treasure the Old Testament and the Psalms, but we treasure even more Christ in his fullness of incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. These riches of Christ Jesus in his life and redeeming work are treasures to sing, treasures to hymn, treasures to stir sweet, reverent music to his glory. We are in the age of God's riches in Christ Jesus. That means more ways to sing of those riches than psalms. Yes, psalms, 
but more than psalms as Paul instructs us here. Here is an infallible, God-inspired direction on the music and songs of praise commended to the Colossian church. And I note as a footnote that the Ephesian church is commended in exactly or virtually exactly the same parallel fashion in chapter 5, verse 19. So our basic principle from the apostles' inspired list here is the principle of unfolding revelation, richer and greater and more glorifying as we move from Old Testament to New Testament reality and privilege. We do not live under the shadow, the cloud of the shadowy administration, Colossians 2.17. We live in the substance of the reality of the eschatological or semi-eschatological administration. Heavens, choirs sing. Psalms and hymns and heavenly songs. And we join them with psalms and hymns and heavenly spiritual songs. Now, what do we make of the apostles' order? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There's no and in the original Greek text. It's just a catalog of lists. First, it is clear, in my opinion, that these are three distinct styles, three distinct genres of musical song, three styles used in Colossae and Ephesus in Christian congregational worship. Psalms and also hymns and also spiritual songs. It is not accurate, in my opinion, to read these three categories as variations on one category. That is, psalms, which are hymns and spiritual songs. That is eisegesis. It is not exegesis, in my opinion. Second, it is clear, in my opinion, that these three are unfolding styles or unfolding genres of musical song used in Colossae, Ephesus, and Christian congregational worship. Now, how are they unfolded? This is the challenge. But my suggestion is as follows. Perhaps psalms are drawn from the Jewish or Hebrew tradition. Hymns are drawn from the Hellenistic or Greek-Gentile tradition. Spiritual songs are drawn from the Christian Holy Spirit experience. In other words, there is a distinct cultural musical style which explains the three distinct categories. Now, as you're listening to my explanation, my observation may seem gratuitous, if not actually fatuous, but it does grapple with the reality of the differences, even if it turns out to be unsuccessful, for I'm anchoring my position on the fact that these are distinct differences. And so I'm expanding, I'm exploring rather, the the differences on the basis of an unfolding distinction. Right now, let me add to that unfolding pattern a redemptive historical pattern. Let me suggest a redemptive historical differentiation. 
consistent with the redemptive historical unfolding of the revelation in the Word of God. Notice, we've made the privilege, the position, that Paul even emphasizes in this verse, the Word of God and its unfolding riches. We've made that by principal point. The richer revelation of the New Testament over the Old. The richer revelation of the New Testament over the Psalter. The richer and more glorious revelation. We made that the principle that the apostle himself is making here. We're only quoting him. Let's then consider these three categories in a redemptive historical differentiation, which is consistent with that redemptive historical revelation in its unfolding pattern. Psalms, then, would include the Old Testament Psalter as a foundation of the praise and song of the people of God of old. Hymns would include the musical expression in praise and song of the new people of God, the Israel of God of the end of the age, as he calls it in Galatians 6. Worshiping people of the church in the fullness which has been revealed in Christ Jesus. To this point, then, we have Old Testament psalmody, preserved and yet complemented by New Testament hymnody. Notice what I'm suggesting here, an unfolding pattern. Even as the New Testament revelation unfolds and advances and enriches the the old, so far we have musical patterns which advances and enriches the old. Old Testament psalmody preserved and yet complemented, advanced by New Testament hymnody. Examples. Examples of New Testament hymns. They are found in many places. Luke 2.14, Gloria in Excelsis, Glory to God in the highest. They are found in Philippians 2.5-11. Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Colossians 1.15-20, which we've already discussed. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from the dead, having made peace by the blood of his cross. Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Revelation 19, 1 and 4. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, it is true that there are those that contest the identification, particularly of the Philippians and the Colossians passage as Christian hymns, but I do think that there is evidence, at least I tip the balance in that direction, that they are hymnic constructions of those two congregations that Paul constructed for those two congregations. That leaves the third category of spiritual songs, which is the most challenging of all. Are these Christian songs, and they're obviously Christian songs, are these Christian songs sung as a result of receiving the Holy Spirit in rebirth, Resurrection from the dead, or communion with the Holy Spirit himself, and the spiritual fellowship of that experience expressed in musical song. In other words, the ordinary working of the Spirit in the life of a believer expressing itself in song. Is that what spiritual songs are? Or are they charismatic songs? That is, songs sung under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is this a charismatic gift, spiritual song? I do not think so. 
I think we can uh, <coughs> dismiss that one, in my opinion, rather quickly. But the apostle here and in Ephesians 5.19 being <coughs> describing the ordinary forms of musical praise and song common to the Christian worship experiences in those two congregations, he would not add in something which is extraordinary. And the charismatic experience is extraordinary. It was intended only for a particular time and place, and that time and place in short duration, namely the apostolic era. So the spiritual songs here are not in <coughs> inspired Holy Spirit spiritual songs. Well then, are these spiritual songs songs which reflect the spiritual arena? Are these spiritual songs songs of heaven's spiritual glory and consolation, somewhat on the order of Jerusalem the golden, where the sands of time are sinking, but the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land? Now, if my suggestion here is plausible, we would then have in these three categories, these three words, three phrases, we would have a progression from Old Testament song, psalms, to New Testament song, hymns, to eschatological song, heaven, in the panorama of the fullness of the history of redemption from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the eschaton. Now that may be a suggestion hanging by a very slim thread. But if I think redemptive historically, and I do, if Paul gives me three categories, I'm going to think of three categories of existence. Old Testament era, New Testament era, eschatological era. So that then the spiritual songs would be songs which have to do with heaven itself, the glories and expectations of heaven, sung by the illumination and instrumentality in terms of working along with our minds and hearts and emotional centers to bring that kind of expression to our pens and to our lips in song and in composition. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm not completely persuaded of that third identification myself because nobody else knows what it means either exactly. Commentators struggle with it because it doesn't seem to fit the rest of the pattern. In other words, if it was going, if it was, if it was the experience of New Testament believers, then why isn't it just like hymns, the New Testament hymnody? Well, it is and it isn't on my construction. It is a Christian expression, but it is a Christian expression which is spiritually oriented. And what I mean spiritually oriented, to the perfect spiritual arena, oriented to the arena of heaven. Based upon what scripture reveals about the character of heaven, yes, but if that's its focus and orientation, Jerusalem the Golden would be a very good example, and Bonner's hymn on Emmanuel's land would be another very good example. Now, for more on this discussion about inclusive psalmody, that is, psalms plus hymns plus spiritual songs, I've given you the link to Professor Scott Sanborn's 
excellent article on the matter, which was published years ago in KRUGS. You can click on that and take a look at it. It is a little bit challenging. <clears throat> this is a complex argument when you get down to the nitty-gritty of the details, but nonetheless, uh, Scott's article is a very, is a tour de force in my opinion. It's a very good presentation of the issue, and I've tried to uh, add to what he has written by my own suggestions here on this Colossians 3.16 passage. Whatever the explanation of the distinctions, as we have affirmed, Paul gives us a rich treasury of permissible song and music for the New Testament church and the New Testament believer. We can't take the riches away from the categories here. We can't take the progressive treasures away from the categories here. Ben, you've been very patient, so go ahead. Well, I, I'm not a, a proponent of exclusive song at the end, to say, but I do not see the progression because if, if the Old Testament has given us, God has given us 150 songs, clearly designed for public worship, why does he not provide something like that in the New Testament? You, you hinted on a few hymns here and there, but there's not an organized selection of what now are superior worship songs over the songs. And so I think it is, to me at least, uh, I have no problem with hymns, but uh, I, I think it is kind of concocted, I would say, to, to, to bring in this. The, the privilege of singing hymns, I grant. But to find the hymns in the New Testament, and just a handful, and, and then you would have to restrict it to that. But we have many hymns in the book, in the, in the Red Book, for instance. And uh, they're certainly not superior to the Psalms, many of them. There are some that are good, but many of them are inferior, in my, in my estimation. Well, thank because, you, man. You know, the, 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 old, the Psalms. Oh, how love I that Lord. It is my meditation day and night. Isn't that the song of the And it's, and say that the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, the Old, the old Testament and the New Testament are both the words of Christ. Yes, agreed. But it's the word of Christ in reflection upon worthy is the lamb that was slain in terms of that uh, Revelation 5 hymn. I appreciate your comments. And uh, you have raised an interesting question if we have a catalog in the old, but we have no catalog in the new, you know, why why isn't that provided? <clears throat> My best answer here is to say it's the difference between, shall we say, the uh, <clears throat> the impoverishment of the old and the richest of the new. And that impoverishment is to expand the Christian liberty into using those gifts which have been given in terms of musical skill and the use of genre, both in hymns and spiritual songs, the songs which come out of the spirit of the believer in reflection of the glory of Christ who has been born, crucified, dead, and raised and risen again. So uh, I'm I'm, I'm, uh, I'm arguing here that there's greater liberty here under the new age. It's not restricted to the catalog of the Psalter because he lists these hymns in addition. So having listed these hymns in addition, (laughs) if there are some, then there's nothing wrong with uh, with constructing others that are in harmony with the uh, with the testimony of the New Testament Word of God, the riches 
which are coming through this Colossians letter and the whole corpus of New Testament inspired revelation. So my, my spirit, uh, <coughs> directed conscience and creativity directed to glorifying God using the multiform doc, uh, doctrines and teachings and, and, uh, and, and history of Christ in his uh, life and in his glorification in the New Testament passages and and singing about that, singing with all my heart about that, out of that fullness of completion, the liberty to do so, not just bound to this altar, but also adding to it hymns which the apostle adds here and whatever the spiritual songs are. Uh, Whether that's an adequate answer to you, that would be the answer that I would present uh, as to why there's no particular catalog. always the uninspired words of men as opposed to the inspired word of God. That distinction will always remain. The, the, the distinction remains, Ben, but you admit that when you're singing the Psalms, you're not singing the Psalms as they were written. You're not singing the inspired Hebrew text. You're singing a paraphrase or a translation and a, or an interpretation of the meaning. In fact, you do it sometimes in order to, to get the right meter for your tune. So, it's not as if we're a Hebrew congregation singing from the Hebrew text of Psalm 1, etc. So there is a paraphrastic issue there with respect to writing a psalm. And that would also come down to me as a writer of a hymn if I were writing a Christian hymn. It would be incumbent upon me to be consistent with the New Testament revelation, harmonious with the Old Testament revelation and its richness, but also enriching it further by the New Testament, so that that brings the matter down to, are the hymns constructed in a way which is faithful to the New Testament and Old Testament revelation consistently understood in its unfolding richness, glory, and doctrinal purity? That's the challenge which is upon the hymn writer. And, and so I would, I would urge that as the barometer by which we would test anything that's in a hymn book, anything that's in a songbook. It'd be tested by that canon, and we wouldn't sing it if it weren't measuring up to that canon. Yes, you're right. There are things in the hymn book that shouldn't be there. I agree with that because they're fallible human uh, structures and they're, they're sappy. They're doctrinally imprecise. They're actually downright wrong sometimes. So we need to, we need to weed those out and avoid them where we discover them and uh, place our emphasis upon that which is more edifying, including the, the paraphrasing and the expression, the, the putting to music of the, of the 150 Psalms. Yes, uh, Randy. Yeah, we certainly think that the Spirit sets us free to put any scripture to music that we want. Old or New Testament, right? I, I would agree with that. If you're taking the words of the passage literally and you're saying you're going to put that to a tune, there obviously would be no problems with that. Even though you understand you're dealing with a translation of the original, you're not singing it in Greek. Yes, all right. To comment on another person's uh, comments, is that allowed here? <laughs> I think we're among friends. Okay, better ask that question, Ben. So, my observation: I think Ben is. I see Ben making two separate comments. One is the: is this a redemptive historical progression from one type of music to another? Ben says no, he doesn't see that and doesn't think that's the case. But whether whether or not that's the case, you pointed out that because there's three categories, we have a richness. We have a richness from which to draw on for our, for our singing. 
And so, so whether or not you're right or Ben's right on the redemptive historical, we have that richness. This is a point you've already made. Yes, I'm trying to account for the richness on something which is more, it, which is more concrete is a good word, but it's more part of the argument of this epistle. The argument of this epistle is the tremendous riches which abound in Christ. He even uses that word in this 16th verse. So is that richness a part of an unfolding richness? That's, so I, since I can't solve it on the, on the matter of just the terms, the etymology of the terms, the dictionary definition of the terms. So I, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm grasping. I'm not addressing, I, I like the historical, I'm not addressing that at the moment. I'm just saying whether that's true or not. Clearly, because there's three distinct categories, there's a richness. Whether it's an unfolding richness or not, there's a richness. You've made that point. The other point that Ben uh, made was that we, as I take it, said we better be careful with these two forms of uh, spiritual songs because they're not, you know, many of them are not based on the exact words of Scripture. So they can be good or they can be bad, whereas we know Scripture is always good. And uh, But we have here that there is this category. It's not defined according to Scripture. So yes, we better be careful, as you just said, you know, the composers better be careful. And those who are reviewing them to decide whether they enter into our Psalter or not, they have to be careful too. So, um, but that's not to say that category doesn't exist, just because we need to be careful about it. <laughs> it's just difficult to, to know which category it is. <laughs> I like the eschatological vector because I think it moves us along. But nonetheless, uh, but the richness itself, there's, there's the multiplicity. Even the person with an eschatological view could be making a serious mistake in composing a terrible song, even then. No, no, we're, we're, we're dealing with a successful uh, composition here, not, not one which is uh, deficient in something. Yes, we would look and examine. That's the reason we have committees to adopt these hymnals, that they go over these words and, in fact, give them out to... The, the church as a whole in order for the church to respond to them. So Ben, <laughs> see I interpret Ben's comment, he wants a guarantee that these are scriptural. And the Psalms are a guarantee, because we know that's the word of God. But what we're reading today says that we can have spiritual songs without the guarantee that they're songs. And they still could be good. We just have to be discerning. Yes, I think that that's what he is saying. Yes. Well, even with the psalms that we sing, there's no guarantee that they are right. Because we interpret them in our English language to mean what we think they mean. And... That's not a guarantee that they're right. It's just our best estimate that they're right. Your hope is that the composer of the English psalm also knows Hebrew well enough to compose it accurately and to use the, the synonyms of the Hebrew language with Hebrew word and phrases uh, in an accurate translation and metrical uh, presentation. But you're right to observe, as I was pointing out to Ben, that the paraphrase, you're paraphrasing the Hebrew to bring it over into English. You're making it an English idiom. And so you've moved away from the original inspired version to your own interpretation of it. 
So yes, the, you, you can fall through the slots of fallibility even there. So we, we uh, yes, go ahead, Kay. I, I don't know what's been said because I don't hear it. But anyway, the whole word is inspired. It's all God's word, so why can't we sing the whole thing? I'm with you, I'm with you. And I think if we have a hymn that doesn't reflect the words of God, well, then we shouldn't sing it. And one more thing, I can't imagine that God would want us never to sing the name of Jesus Christ in church, because that name is not in in the Psalms, as I know of, his name. So we couldn't ever say that in church? Well, you'd have to put it into the Psalm, and it would, they, wouldn't they be in the original then, so you'd be... Yes, you'd be adding to what was not in the psalm. <clears throat> yeah. Though by implication you would be with Psalm 22 and so on, so <clears throat> Psalm 51. Yeah. Well, you you understand the uh, you understand the the jicks of the tension <clears throat> and the discussion, and you've had an exercise here in a classic discussion of what Christian hymnody should be in the New Testament era, and of course the church has made its way through these. Uh, thorn bushes and myriads and labyrinths and so on to come up with, at least in the Reformed churches, the Trinity hymnal, which I think is a very fine hymnal in the mo- for the most part, though some of the tunes are unsingable. Uh, and on the other, and on the other hand, uh, there's only one hymnal that I think is better, but it's a Welsh hymnal. <laughs> and and, and uh, it's not in Welsh, it's in English, but the music is arranged at the, the words are at the bottom of the page, the music at the top of the page. So if you read music, you're looking down and up all the time trying to figure out where you're supposed to be. It, it's not conducive to uh, at least American uh, language style. <clears throat> but um, we, we've come a long way in this discussion. And we've come a long way in this discussion because of this language of the apostle. So the church's intent and her heart in discussing this matter has been to be faithful to what the apostle is saying here. That's what I've tried to be. I've tried to be faithful to what the apostle said. Whether I'm right about that or wrong about that, that was my intention. So that's to be the intention of our singing, and whether it's hymns or psalms or spiritual song, faithful to what the apostles and the disciples have written and intended. On that matter, I think we can all say amen. amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of putting on the new man in terms of that garb which is kind and gentle, humble and loving, patient and tender-hearted, and forgiving above all because it is a garb of the love of Jesus Christ himself. And we thank you for putting on the robe of thanksgiving and praise, even to the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We delight, O Lord, to sing your praises, even as the angels and the glorified saints in heaven sing them even at this hour. So we ask, Lord, that we might honor you with what we say, that when we sing it, we might sing it with understanding and with love in our hearts, as well as thanksgiving, because Jesus has done so much for us, and we ask these things in his precious name. Amen.